from days of long ago. From uncharted regions of the universe comes a legend. Welcome to Star Joe's Podcast, episode 148, Robert's a Princess. I'm your host, Ryan, and welcome back, everyone. Yes, sorry, guys, it's been a long time since an episode's come out. I have no one to blame but myself. Uh, it's been a hectic month, and uh, I can't say it's been all bad hectic. It's been a lot of fun hectic. Uh, some people on Facebook that are connected with me or saw on the fan page and stuff like that may have seen a comment or two being made. That uh, the Cavs, who I'm a huge fan of, been a fan of theirs since the 80s, you know, they made it into the finals. Uh, So I was going to, uh, they would have what was known as watch parties here and uh, for when the Cavs were away. And what those are is you just go to the arena that the Cavs would normally play at and you would like pre-order tickets. They were free, but you had to like pre-order them so you knew how many people were coming. They would have everything you'd see at a normal Cavs game just not the players. So you'd watch the game on a big screen and it was a lot of fun. So I went to one of those games every single series. And then I was fortunate enough uh, that my wife won tickets to one of the finals games. Now, unfortunately it was not one of the finals game that the Cavs won at. The Cavs didn't win the overall finals, which was disappointing, but no one expected the Cavs to get this far or that far into the series, especially with what they were having to deal with and everything. There was a lot of fun there that was going on. I was on vacation for a week doing stuff for a week there. I got the last, in fact, the last episode that came out came out right before I went on vacation. So I was gone for a whole week. When I came back, that's when, you know, the Cavs fun stuff was starting. Man, I could tell you a ton of other things that were going on that weren't as uh, much fun. I did have an aunt that passed away, so that really sucked. She was an amazing woman and just a lot of great memories growing up with her and her family and everything. So 
was dealing with some some family issues with that. Have uh, my parents are coming into town very soon. They're going to be coming and staying with us for a week. I had my sister-in-law get married, so uh, congratulations to her and her husband. So as you can imagine, June itself has just been a hectic month. It's just been crazy. And I, as much of the fun stuff that was going on, I'm looking forward to June being over because July should be a lot more mild month and I should be able to record again and get more stuff out to you guys again. Uh, in fact, uh, Robert and I have already communicated as far as what we're going to do for episode 150. And it's real, you know, I, I wanted to do interviews and things like that initially, but it's been so long since him and I have gotten together to record that I was like, let's just get together and record. I mean, let's just record a big episode. So we, what we are planning to do or what we've talked about doing is we're going to do a top five extravaganza, uh, episode. So, a while back in January, I asked on Facebook if anyone had any top five suggestions, things that they would like us to do a list on for an episode. And you guys gave out a lot of suggestions. And if you have more ideas for top five suggestions, please send them in to us. You can send them at starjoespodcast at gmail.com. You can send them as a message on Facebook. Uh, you can call and leave us a voicemail, which is 440-941-JOES. 440-941-JOES. Uh, that's another way that you can you know, leave your suggestion and we'll do your top five on the episode. Um, we're just going to get through as many of them as we can. And, and in that episode, we're also going to respond to your guys' listener feedback. We've had a lot building up and some voicemails and everything else. So um, I'm still in the middle of preparing for my parents to get here. So I'm still cleaning up the house. But I wanted to get an episode out to you guys. So I'm recording in my kitchen right now. Because uh, where I normally record is the room that is one of our guest rooms, and that's a room getting ready for my parents to stay in. So, like I said, I want to try to get something out to you guys. I'm still going to try to get two episodes out to you guys in the month of June. I know there's not a lot of the month of June left, but this episode's going to come out for sure in June. I already have an episode that was recorded with Shannon and uh, John Thurman and Robert, where we did the top five movies of 1982, our top five favorites. I'm going to start working on editing that right after this episode comes out. So hopefully I can get it in within the month of June, so you'll still have two episodes that come out in June. Uh, again, sorry that the it's been a long time since the episode came out, but here we are. So with that, you might wonder why I called the episode Robert is a Princess. Other than to make him question why I would call it and, and get a text message from him saying, what are you doing? Um, it's also because in this episode, you're going to hear a panel from JoeCon. So it's the last recording I have from JoeCon. It's Robert at an uh, artist panel at JoeCon, which was really cool to hear and, and attend. And I wanted you guys to be able to hear what he had to say as far as working on G.I. Joe. And uh, also, I'm going to give you that review of Star Wars Princess Leia number one. So that's where you get Robert is a princess. Is I'm going to be reviewing Princess Leia, and Robert's panel is on this episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the issue. So Princess Leia number one, uh, it was written by Mark Wade, and the art was by Terry Dodson. And the inks were actually by Rachel Dodson. Uh, the coloring was by George... Jordi Belair. The letter was VC's Joe Caramanga, which we've seen his name before. The assistant editor is Charles 
Charles Beecham. The editor was Jordan D. White. Uh, executive editors are C.B. Sobolski and Mike Martz. Editor-in-chief is Axel Alonzo. And chief creative officer, Joe Casada. Publisher is Dan Buckley. And then from Lucasfilm, we had creative director Michael Sigling. Senior editor, Jennifer Heddle. And Lucasfilm story group, Rain Roberts, Pablo Hidalgo, and Leland Chi. Because again, these stories are supposed to be in canon. These things happen with whatever happens in these issues is part of official Star Wars canon, official Star Wars lore. And I know a lot of things have been happening in the main Star Wars title. I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone that hasn't read it yet, but there's some character developments that happen. And the only thing I can say is just don't lose your mind over it. It's it's a story element. I think it's an awesome story element. I think it's going to make for some interesting storytelling. Just realize that where that story takes place, some of the status quo has to return. So, like I said, don't lose your mind. There, I know there's a lot of people out there on message boards and everything else. This is impossible. You're destroying the history of the character. Like, give me a break. It's storytelling, and I thought it was a cool element to throw in the story. If you don't want to, don't know what I'm talking about. Check them out the main Star Wars issues. They are amazing. It's great storytelling. It's great art. You'll love it. Um, but back to Princess Leia here. So the cover here, the main cover, and I do have some of the variant covers. I don't know how many were done for Princess Leia. I'll have that information maybe for you next time. It's just a classic outlet for Princess Leia. Um, it reminds me a lot of her Hoth outfit uh, where it's all in white and she's got kind of the... the tan jacket over it it's my favorite look for princess leia is her hoth outfit so i really like the way she looks on the cover here she's holding up a blaster she's got a pilot x-wing pilot helmet in her arm and that really says a lot as to what's happened what happened inside the issue we do get a story crawl which uh, let me go ahead and read this like much like i did for some of the past star wars issues that i covered princess leia part one it is a time of both hope and mourning within the rebellion while on a secret mission to deliver stolen plans for the Death Star to the Rebel Alliance, Princess Leia Organa was captured by the Galactic Empire and forced to witness the battle station's power as it destroyed her home planet of Alderaan. With the help of a farm boy pilot and a fast-talking smuggler, Leia escaped her captors and completed her mission. Using the plans, the Alliance was able to destroy the Empire's ultimate weapon. Having proven themselves a formidable enemy to the Empire, the Rebels are in more danger now than ever, leaving them with little time to celebrate their triumph or lament their loss. And where this story picks up is it picks up right from the end of Episode 4, A New Hope. So right from the ceremony, the award ceremony that we saw at the end of that movie, which I thought was really cool. The only thing I was disappointed with, with this uh, compared to Star Wars and Darth Vader was... There wasn't the big splash page of, like, Star Wars Princess Leia. We had that with Star Wars, and then we had that with Darth Vader. This went right to a crawl page, um, which is fine. It looks cool, but it just would have been nice if it had the same fanfare as the other two releases that came out. So what we have here is we have uh, Terry Dodson's art, which I think was good. There's, there's moments where it looks a little wonky in the face, uh, in the faces. So it wasn't my favorite art out of the Star Wars books that are out there right now. I still love it. I think it's still awesome. But it's, it's probably my least favorite. Uh, just like you said, there's a, a few times where the faces look a bit wonky. And on this page is, is an example of that. 
you have Harrison Ford, well, Han Solo, not looking like Harrison Ford, I should say, uh, almost looking more like Jughead or something like that from an Archie comic, but with like Han Solo hair. They're getting their uh, medals and Chewie does his growl just like he does at the end of A New Hope. So again, it just picks up right from there. Um, we have Leia then on the next page. She's talking about what they've achieved, but also that it's time that we should reflect on those that we've lost. And she says, let's take a moment to honor the lost souls of Alderaan, to honor Viceroy Bail Organa and Queen Brea Organa. Um, and she says, may they forever be remembered. And one of the pilots turns to the other one and says, you know, that's all she has to say, like not much emotion from the ice princess. And um, so all the pilots don't really have a lot of respect for her. They see her as a princess. They see her as royalty. And they just think that she's kind of cold towards any type of emotion because that's what royals do. Um, General Dodonna is there and he says the next thing we have to do is find a new base because the Empire is out there and they know that we've struck a major blow. Everyone's being assigned to either find a new area or to help with evacuations. Leia wonders if, uh, has a nice little smart comment which I think is perfect for the Leia character. She says it to Han. She's like, uh, you heard the general, there's much to be done. Let's go see how much of it involves a hairy beast and his co-pilot. And Han says, hey, he's the co-pilot. And she says, I know. So I thought that was pretty funny. And again, great character uh, usage there when, you know, that's something Leia would say. That, you know, she would have that snarky little smart, uh, smart-ass comment to Han. Luke makes a little comment and... Uh, about how he's going to stick around and Leia's like, why are you looking at me that way? And he, he wasn't going to say anything, but then he decides, you know, you were there for me when Ben died and I just wish someone could be there for you that you would feel like you could lean on somebody. Uh, Leia looks and sees a female X-Wing pilot uh, standing before the statues of her parents or what who she believes was her parents at the time and notices the reverence that uh, this pilot is given. We don't know her name as of yet. We see Admiral Akbar. He's ordering some humans around that are moving, helping with the evacuation, and he he kind of picks on them for being human and everything, like that they're fumbling and everything, being clumsy. Leia says, tells him that she's looking for General Dodonna, and he says, "Oh, you'll find him in the in the room over there," uh, and he kind of just dismisses Princess Leia. It was really just kind of like a moment to introduce Admiral Akbar, kind of showing that he was there even at these early d days of the Rebellion, not just during Return of the Jedi. So Leia approaches General Dodonna, and he's looking at different planets in the galaxy. He's trying to decide which ones are the best. Leia says, you know, I've been, you know, I've noticed that everyone's got a job except for me. Everyone's been assigned something, and, and I want to help with the Rebellion. Uh, you know, I know this galaxy better than anyone. So uh, let me help with the scouting parties. And Dodonna says, absolutely not. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Princess, but there's a bounty on your head. And it's a major bounty because of what you did just, you know, with causing the Empire to have such a major blow happen to them. And he says, you're not to leave anywhere without being guarded. Uh, you're too valuable of an asset. And, you know, of course, Leia's not going to take that lightly of like oh just sit there and be the princess so she walks into the x-wing uh hangar bay 
and she sees two pilots and one of the pilots is the female pilot she saw at her parents uh, memorial she finds out that the that that female pilot name is Evan uh, or Yvonne it's E-V-A-A-N she's making and Yvonne's making comments about uh, Princess Leia and then lo and behold it's one of those like she's standing behind me isn't she <laughs> Yvonne you know or Princess Leia dismisses the other pilot and Yvonne's you know bows to Princess Leia and says your royal majesty and she's like please Princess Leia's like please don't do that and we find out that you know she that Yvonne was paying some respects because Leia's mother had helped train her and raise her uh, as far as how to be proper and how to be a lady and, and how to, to do things the Alderanian way. She really feels that Leia has forgotten these things. And, but at the same time, you know, she's realizing that they're the, some of the last Alderanians that are out there and she's going to do whatever she can to protect Princess Leia, that she will be, the, be her bodyguard and protector. And I really like this, Yvonne character. In fact, I like her more as the issues go on. I've, I've read the next two issues, uh, issues two and three, and I really like her as a new character being introduced to this because they definitely needed some strong female characters being introduced into the Star Wars universe. We had Princess Leia, but we could definitely use some other strong female characters, and I think having this be an X-Wing pilot who's going to protect Leia and, and everything else, just a really cool character. Not to the same level but it reminds me of like a of Brienne of, of Tarth uh, from Game of Thrones if you've watched that like she's going to swear herself to protect Leia uh, and do whatever Leia wants to do much like Brienne did for uh, Lady Stark so Leia tells her th- this plan that you know she wants to save go out there and save the Alderanians that are, are still out there uh, because they need protecting we then go to a scene with General Dodonna's sleeping chambers and R2-D2 is has is standing there and it wakes Dodonna and Dodonna's like how did you get in here R2 then projects a hologram of Leia telling Dodonna her plan and she goes I'm not uh, gonna apologize for what I'm about to do but rather I'm letting you know this out of respect and Dodonna's like no you can't possibly do that he reaches for the for R2 and finds out that R2 is just another hologram uh, we then see R2 riding up along the ship He's carrying a little device that comes into play later, and he kind of like leaves it on the on the exterior of the ship, and then he drops down into the ship itself. Ivan just you know tells Leia that I don't think this was a smart plan to to let them know what you're doing because they're going to waste ships coming and looking for us and trying to bring us back when the rebellion really needs those ships. Uh, so Leia understands, but at the same time, this is the decision she has already made. Uh, they notice that they're being pursued and they realize that it is Luke and Wedge who are both coming after them. Luke is still being known as Red Five. So he comes across the comm link and he says, you know, Leia, what are you doing? You need to turn around. And Leia's like, I remember when we were on the same side and Luke says, we still can be. Uh, Yvonne says that, you know, I'm going to have to get a little fancy with maneuvering and before we can go to hyperspace because what they're doing is they're getting in front of us and if I try to go into hyperspace I'm going to plow right through them and certainly don't want to do that. Um, she knocks one of the uh, pilots, I, I don't know which one it was, I believe it was Luke, but she kind of hits the ship 
that they're flying into Luke's X-Wing, and all of a sudden the hyperdrive comes loose. And uh, Yvonne says, you know, we're going to have to turn around. The ship's getting unstable. You know, we lost the hyperdrive. We can't escape at this point. Leia's like, you did that on purpose. Uh, she believes that Yvonne, you know, doesn't believe in this plan, doesn't believe in what they're doing. Um, and just wants to bring Leia back because she feels that that's what's best. So Leia's like, you know, how could you be so careless? Why would you do that? Yvonne says, no excuse, ma'am. I, I was careless. And she's like, no, you, you plan to do this all along. The X-Wings back off because they believe that the ship has to turn around and, and head back um, safely. And they need to give it a, enough space. Well, sure enough, as soon as they back off, Yvonne hits the hyperdrive and they blast off. And what we find out is that her, that Yvonne and, and R2 planned out in advance that they were going to take a dismantled hyperdrive and put it on the ship so they could knock it loose in case as, as like a little, knowing that ships would probably come looking for them, that it would give them the extra space that they needed if they thought that the ship was damaged in some way. So Leia absolutely loved it. She's like, you know, I, I thought for sure you'd turn against me. And Yvonne says, well, I couldn't tell you what was going on while they were listening. Um, so Leia says, can you get me to Naboo? And Yvonne says, yes, ma'am. And that's where the issue ends. Like I said, it was a cool issue. I really like it. I think they portrayed Leia as a strong individual. She was strong but respectful. And I think in some cases, some of the complaints that I've heard about this issue is like, well, it didn't seem like it was Leia because she was being too obedient to those around her. And she really wasn't being obedient. She was being Leia. She was being respectful of those around her, those that were her superiors. Because remember, she's not the person in charge. She's not the big you know, person in charge of all the rebellion. She's an important part of it, but she is not the head of the rebellion. So she's being respectful of those that are running this rebellion. But at the same time, when she doesn't agree with them, it's just like in Star Wars A New Hope. Look, what's, you know, when they get her out of the tension cell, what's the plan? Uh, I don't know. He had the plan. Okay, well, none of you have a plan. I'm going to take the gun and I'm going to make a plan. So that's kind of what she's doing here. She's like, all right, I don't agree with the plan that you guys are looking to do. I think that this is what, you know, since you're not going to give me an assignment, I'm going to create my own assignment and that I think is going to also help the rebellion. So I think it's really cool. I, I like, I, I really love the character Yvonne being involved. Uh, I like that we have R2s involved. So I think it works really well. I think the story works really well. I think the next couple issues also tells the story well. I like the fact that this is a miniseries because of the time period that's taking place in. I think it would be tough to make it an ongoing simply because you have Star Wars going on and the main Star Wars book you have lay in there also. So when I first heard this was coming out, I was like, oh, it would have been nice if this was an ongoing about Leia. But because of where it's taking place, I totally understand it being a miniseries. Um, at some point in the future, I would love to see another Leia miniseries or even a Leia ongoing where it makes sense, if it makes sense for the story. So kudos to Mark Wade, kudos to Terry Dodson, Lisa. I, I like the like the art. I thought it was very strong in some places, a little bit weaker in some, some other places. Um, it's a little bit more loose and flowy in some areas, but absolutely brilliant storytelling. Um, I would give this probably like a high borrow it's it you know if you're a huge star wars fan it's a definite buy you have you have to pick this up but i would say for those that were kind of you know if you're comparing this to star wars and to the darth vader series that i was reviewing earlier 
this is more of a high borrow. This is one where if you have a chance to read it, you should definitely read it. You know, if you have a friend that has it, tell them you want to read it. Um, but if it's if you're just kind of like, well, I, I'm liking the main Star Wars book. I just don't know if I need to be reading this. It's probably not something you need to read, so that's why I'm kind of sticking with the borrow there. But it's definitely a story worth checking out. Uh, like I said, if you know anyone that has it, let them know that you want to read it. That's really about it. I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to the panel. Uh, Robert's panel, it was, uh, they'll introduce themselves <laughs> uh, in the recording, but uh, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Again, wanted to bring some of JoeCon back to you guys. I don't always get to go, and I know a lot of you guys have never had an opportunity to go. So because of that, I wanted to bring as much of JoeCon as I could back with me to share with you guys. Uh, like I said, then we're going to have episode uh, 149 will be our top five movies of 1982. That'll come out as fast as I can get it out to you guys. And then after that is going to be episode 150. And that is going to be a top five extravaganza. It'll be Robert and myself. We might be able to get Chuck in there. Uh, we might be able to get some other people that have been uh, guest co-hosts in the past on that episode. It should be a lot of fun. I definitely want it to be a big episode, so we're going to do as many top fives as we can. We're going to respond to you, to your guys' uh, feedback, so send in any more suggestions that you have. I have a pretty nice list going, but there's always room for more. With that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to the JoeCon panel. Take it away, Robert. G.I. Joe is a very specific kind of a thing to work on, so there's has its own little idiosyncrasies there. Um, and then after that, we'll just open up the floor for Q&A. So we'll turn time over to Adam. All right. So I'm going to start way back at the beginning here, get, get myself some uh, street cred. All right. <laughs> so a question I've been asked a lot is, how did I get my start on G.I. Joe? And the short answer is, go to art school and be ruthlessly persistent in getting my portfolio seen. But the long answer is, I've been drawing G.I. Joe my entire life. I'm a lifelong obsessed fan and uh, nothing's changed. <laughs> I'm still drawing my mom cards as I love her with art and slaughter on them. Um, so anyway, though, fast forward about 20 years, and here's where I get my illustrious start on G.I. Joe with what I know is everyone's favorite figure in this room, the 2013 Club Iceberg figure. Um, this is obviously, <laughs> this is obviously based on the uh, 86 art, so, the, what you're seeing here, though, the, the image on the right is the prototype that I was sent to work from as reference, and what you're seeing on the left there was, I guess what you could call my audition piece. That was just to kind of show that I was able to do this, uh, you know, dip my toe in the water. So this, um, obviously, this wasn't the most exciting figure in the whole world, but it was a start. But a few months later, uh, I really got to kind of flex my artistic muscles here when we started FSS2. And I got to uh, take on some original concepts that had never had card art before. So this is wide scope. Uh, and there we go. Um, it's fun to get to do something with an animal companion. Uh, at the top up here, I referenced all the previous figures that had had animal companions because I didn't want to be too repetitive. Uh, and what you're seeing on the bottom is sort of an evolution of thumbnail sketches leading up to the finish. Uh, the very left was just the first rough draft. Uh, my original concept was to have him pointing a gun at the viewer, but as you can imagine, that didn't go over too well, so that, that quickly turned into him looking off into the distance. 
And up next we have Tollbooth. Uh, again, fun because he was a vehicle driver, so he'd never had single card art before, and it was kind of a neat thing to get to explore. Uh, so the top left were a couple of rough thumbnail sketches, and, and you can see some of the revisions we went through on the right there, leading up to the final art. And in the bottom left corner there is a face only a mother could love, which uh, also went through some evolutions. Uh, here's Cesspool. Uh, this is a lot of fun to get to work on because I had Cesspool version 1 as a kid, so it's a real honor to get to uh, work on Cesspool version 2. Uh, I, in the GI Joe discussion Facebook group, I kind of went into a more in-depth breakdown of this thing, so I'm not going to get too repetitive here for the sake of time. Okay, uh, Kill Hall. Again, this is a really cool one to get to do some single card art for because you've never had any. Um, but I would define illustration as art by committee, so if something's really good, I can't take full credit, and if something's really bad, I can't either. Uh, so the Sometimes I, I pitch my own concepts, sometimes the club comes to me with ideas for stuff. For this one, the direction was that they wanted him pointing up in the sky like he spotted something with his binoculars. But I thought that didn't seem uh, super exciting, so I was trying to find a way to kind of add some flair to that, and I knew it came with a flag accessory, so I thought it'd be a neat little nod to the USS flag that you're probably never going to get again, so we uh, went ahead and stuck that in there to give him some elements of interest. Bombardier. Uh, this was a lot of fun, a figure that had, didn't even have a figure, he was unreleased. You probably heard Dave Free talk about that a little bit earlier. So it was neat to get to, to find an identity for a character that didn't have one. And uh, he's sort of loosely based on my cousin and the sculpt of the toy. <laughs> uh, Desert Scorpion. This was sort of based on the vintage art, but obviously a modern update. I uh, just wanted to find a way to get him holding all of his accessories. Not a ton to say about it. Okay, and now we're up to last year's convention-exclusive Joe Colton. Um, based on his Marvel Comics appearance from the 80s and sort of loosely James Bondish, I guess. Uh, something that you guys have never seen, though, is that he had about 8,000 different versions of his head before we arrived at the finished product. <laughs> um, my original go up there in the top left was to model him to look as close as possible to the actual figure, but eventually it was decided that he should look more like, I guess, the, sort of the 60s box art, adventure team style. And uh, up there on the right was a couple of loose thumbnail sketches to define a pose for him. Okay, cross country. Um, this was an interesting one because we wanted him to look like the vintage card art, except he doesn't really have vintage card art. Whoa. All that we had for cross country. Maybe? Okay. This is, this is live. Okay. All we had. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you want to control this thing? Am I? <laughs> I'm not touching anything. No? That's it. Okay. Um, so Cross Country did never have full card art. All we had was this extremely tiny image that was on his file card, which is what you're seeing in the center there. And so we kind of were trying to imagine, well, what would the rest of them look like? So the 
problem with this, though, is over time, you don't want to be too repetitive with what's been done in the past, and there's only so many ways to draw a guy holding a gun before it starts to get really boring. So we went through a few different versions and finally arrived at what you see on the right, which is pretty close, but a few alterations for uh, the modern update. Okay, so I get, um, again, this is based on the vintage art, so not incredibly interesting, but it uh, just reflects the, the modern updates that the figure had gotten for FSS3. What you're uh, seeing on the top left there are a couple of early thumbnail sketches that I had sent in for approval, and the image on the bottom left is his original card art, and aside from just changing the outfits and updating the accessories and stuff, some of the things that I do on these is if there's an area that that looked, you know, off about the original art. Like, for example, his pistol is held at a very awkward angle in the original art because I guess they wanted to show off the details of it. Try to correct little things like that, extended his lower leg below the knee. Um, and if you look at the top left version, he originally had a different face, which was sort of to try and capture the look of the figure, but we eventually changed that to look more like the vintage card art. Also, he lost his uh, bright neon green t-shirt, unfortunately. I tried. <laughs> uh, Spearhead and Max here, again, not a ton to say about this one. Uh, Max definitely needed to be changed. The original Max, if you're familiar, was kind of, you know. So, <laughs> he needed help in a big way. Uh, the face for Spearhead here is based on the same face that the toy is sculpted after, but who that is, I can't tell you. Uh, Alpine. This was a lot of fun because it gave me a chance to explore some different poses that hadn't really been done, so I got to do somebody hanging from a rope, which was pretty cool. And also, I don't quote me on this, but I believe he's the first figure in the 25th line to have a gunfire coming out, which is pretty cool, because that used to be a pretty common thing in the Real American Hero line. And so this is just some of the ideation we go through when we're doing stuff like this. I usually send in a few rough concepts to just kind of move the process along quickly, and once we find some direction, kind of zero in on it a little bit, which is what you're seeing on the right, before we finally get to the finished art. Okay, so uh, go ahead and cue your booze now. I uh, tr tried to run this up the ladder, but uh, want want. Anyway, keep your, keep your eye on your mailbox these next couple of months. Uh, Night Creeper Leader, Bomb Strike, and Mystery Number 13 are on their way. And now we're into the stuff that you got this weekend. Okay, big brawler. Um, these were interesting to work on because since they were only ever going to be printed as file cards and they were only going to show their head, we didn't really need to draw the rest of their body, so they're, they're a little more rigid than some of the other ones, but I, uh, I couldn't let them go unfinished. Tiger Force Stalker, uh, Annihilator from the two-pack, which uh, again, like Alpine, was a, a fun one to explore the pose that was kind of unique to see somebody you know, in flight like that. And lastly, Metalhead, which uh, we'll get into him more in a second here, but uh, definitely one of my favorite characters and a real uh, ton of fun to work on. Okay, uh, what you're seeing here is the cover for uh, Emerald City's exclusive G.I. Joe number 212, Death of Snake Eyes Part 1. Uh, this is every enemy, cobra, villain, bad guy, whatever you want to call it, 280 characters in total, 34 days of drawing and research that'll never get back. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this is exclusive to a retail store in Clearwater, Florida, but I will have some copies here available at the Boss Fight Studios booth right after this presentation, so if you're interested in getting one, I'll be there, and they're also available at emeraldcitycomics.com.
And now, uh, to finish this off, I'm going to show you guys uh, a short video that's going to kind of walk you through the process of doing the metalhead card art. If it works. If it works. <laughs> you have a play button? So while this is opening, um, can you talk a little bit about like your process? Like, um, you know, are you, are you still doing things traditionally? Is it all digital? Like, how do you go? I mean, you still you were able to show some process shots for like thumbnails, but then kind of step by step, how do you approach it? Um, the way that I approach this is typically the same on every one of them. Uh, I send in a bunch of really quick, loose thumbnail sketches. Probably spend anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes tops on these. Uh, usually do them in Photoshop, and depending on the character, do somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 30 of those. And once we've narrowed in on what we want it to look like, I uh, then usually do the finished art in pencil on traditionally. Uh, scan that into Photoshop and then finish the painting in Photoshop, which allows a little more flexibility for revisions. For example, if Joe Colton needs a new head, now I don't have to repaint it. I can just, you know, if the beard's not quite right. Con control Z and uh, we're, we're back to square one. So do you do like full grayscale tone drawing for the pencils? And then you do the layers of color over that? Yeah, the, the pencil sketches are usually, um, in fact, if you see right there, that cross-country image, they're, uh, they're usually pretty close to the finished product, but um, once I get into the Photoshop part, I, I paint the entire image in black and white to, to get a value structure built up and then build color on top of that. <laughs> Lanny, you're killing me. Pro tip, don't, don't take out stock in PowerPoint. Yeah, here, I'm gonna leave okay. the station. Yeah, no okay, so we can, as soon as this is ready, we'll, we'll head back to that. We can do a little bit of jumping back and forth. Um, and one thing I do want to talk to Adam too is kind of more specifically about, say, how he got into, uh, you know, work. And he said he was showing his portfolio around and stuff too. But there's always, everybody has a bit of a different, oops, sorry, a different story when it comes to like how they broke in. You know, uh, a lot of the work you do, unless you're working for, say, Hasbro specifically, or you're you know, in in studio, kind of working under contract, is more often than not it's freelance work. So me and Adam can kind of be in that category. And there's so many different ways to try and break into that. It's, it's a difficult kind of barrier to cross. But as soon as you do, and you've done a few projects where you can show that you're uh, reliable, you know, that you can get things done, and that uh, you know, that there's a, some kind of reaction to your work, like people would, would like it or buy it based on what they see, then it then it's not nearly as hard to say continue getting the work. You know, it's, you kind of have to give yourself, give yourself a bit of a track record there. Um, from very early on, when I started working on G.I. Joe, uh, it was the very first thing I had started on was back when, it, when Devil's Zoo still had it, and they did the Snake Eyes Declassified you know, series. So I did a couple fill-in issues there, and um, and so it was just a, a matter of I knew one of the editors that kind of worked there at Devil's Zoo. So as soon as this is ready, though, we can hop back over to this. All right, so, so how did you, like, say, get your stuff in front of the Collector's Club to start doing that? Um, it had always been an aspiration of mine to work on G.I. Joe, obviously since childhood. Uh, when I went to art school, I had started trying to get an internship with Hasbro. That got me nowhere. I ended up doing some freelance work for Ninja Turtles. I'm sure Kirk would love to hear that. Uh, <laughs> and then um, eventually started going to the convention. So every year I would try and get my stuff seen by all the people from Hasbro. And I honestly, I didn't care what facet of G.I. Joe I worked on. I just wanted to work on G.I. Joe. So I was sending in turnaround drawings, packaging art, 
copywriting photography, any, anything that I could find that could in any way get my foot in the door with J.I. Joe, and uh, eventually just from showing it to you know, people over and over, I don't, I don't know if they uh, took pity on me or if I was actually improving, but <laughs> one, one way or the other, uh, it finally led to me uh, getting a shot at Iceberg. I think, I think a lot of it, too, uh, opportunity is, is not just right place, right time. It's, you know, you have to create your own opportunities and you have to stay persistent. And when FSS came about, that opened a window for 13 new pieces of packaging art every year that didn't exist previously. So it's just uh, finding that opening. And with that said, we might finally have this. Okay, so what you're seeing right here is the pencil sketch part. Uh, you know, depending on the complexity of the drawing, this is maybe a few hours of tops because any details that aren't correct at this stage will ultimately get corrected in, in Photoshop. Checking to make sure that it's not getting lost in the extremely 
really vibrant colored background, so I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing doesn't blend in too much. Um, this phase varies, but it, you know, on average, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 hours total for this part. toy-specific design for Hasbro, uh, but there's all kinds of merchandising, uh, that's product, the comic books, you know, things like the Collector's Club where you have licensed uh, projects that are done outside of Hasbro. Um, and there's also a few uh, creative groups uh, that I've kind of talked with where uh, they have an established company and their clients are like Mattel, Hasbro, and a number of other companies. And they do like outsourced projects, you know, or, or package art. Um, so that you could still work and do like toy package art and stuff, but not necessarily even be talking to Hasbro. You're kind of going through a third-party, say, creative group, and that's actually how I've been, how I've done a lot of my um, uh, toy package, you know, art and design where I've worked on, you know, some of the Star Wars, uh, the Black series, the Star Wars Hot Wheels art and Nerf and all that kind of stuff. It's like I'm working with Hasbro, but just not directly. Um, so, and then of course you have, say, the, the comics. Um, any kind of animation uh, that, that's being done at the time. So, yeah, there's, if you're an artist and you like J.I. Joe, there are a number of avenues, and it's just a matter of finding the right person in the right way to kind of slide into that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Battleground art? Because I think that that's... I don't think a lot of people realize that you did that, and I think it's very cool. A lot of people... Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the art from that game is incredible. It's some of the best Joe art ever made, and, and very expansive. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that was... that. Uh, that kind of just fell in my lap. I was really excited that I had that opportunity. It was right about when I was kind of wrapping up a lot of the interior work that I was doing on the comics. I was still doing an occasional cover, and I was just really missing working on G.I. Joe, even though I was working on other projects. And uh, they they contacted me. I'm sure they might have heard my name from somebody at Hasbro, as far as maybe suggested artists to work with. But uh, they had a company. It's from you know, Dina Games up in uh, Canada. And they had in-house artists and art directors that were very phenomenal artists. Um, and they were just kind of looking for, I mean, the, the sheer amount of character art for that game was you know, overwhelming for any kind of set group of in-house artists. So they're you know, outsourcing, and like that's where freelance art comes, comes about. And so we were given, um, you know, I was amazed at that game that they wanted to cover you know, 
Real American Hero, like everything from Sigma Six to Renegades and Resolute, everything was on the table as far as variations and versions. Like every version of the toy they were looking to nail. So um, I was given uh, like a PDF packet for each character that, that I was going to be working on, and it had all the reference I would need in that packet. And sometimes it would have even like a, a sketched out pose, you know, to go from. So. Um, so that was just, for me, my part was just doing the, like the finished penciled drawing. Sometimes I'd ink them, but then uh, in the way the game was set up, you know, depending on how the level of the card, like how detailed the art got, or if it was a fully painted piece or whatever. So, um, you know, some took a little bit longer than others, but, uh, you know, it was just a matter of taking characters, make them look dynamic. And, and you mentioned too, like, you can only draw a guy holding a gun, like, so many different ways before you're like, man, what am I going to do? Uh, the wonderful thing about G.I. Joe, though, is the characters are so very unique, mm -hmm. right? So their skill set, the tools, the weapons that they're using, the equipment they have is so specific to them, it's not just a bunch of guys with guns, you know what I mean? It's so much more beyond that. So that's what I, that's what I love about it, because then you can start taking their character into, into mind when uh, picking out a pose, what, what's functional at the same time, what expresses who they are. That's always a very fun point. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I worked I worked on the, the battleground for about a year, um, just cranking out the character. Like I said, it was a lot of character art. So how much of that was collaborative? I know you did the pencils for a lot of them. Did you do the finished painted pieces too, or did somebody paint onto your pencils? Yeah, that's what they had for in-house artists. I think for the most part were the digital painters, and they were so busy just doing the finishing because, like you said, that's a time-consuming mm -hmm. part of the process. So you know, they were. Just, they were trying just to keep up with that aspect of it. So like, if we can get somebody else to do the line art that can get approved and all the little revisions for what the character looks like and all the details of their uniforms done, then if we can go in and just, that's all approved, just handle the colors and the lighting and, and, and like just handle it. Like that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a lot of heavy lifting there. But um, you know, if that first part's done and approved, then that definitely helps take a big portion of that process out of it. So, yeah, there's a lot of times I would turn in my pencils and I'm like, thanks, and I wouldn't say anything until the game came out. And I was like, I'm totally getting that guy, you know what I mean? So, um, the, way that, <laughs> the way that that game worked out is basically the money I was making from drawing those, I just spent on the game. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of like a free game to play, it was great. It's relatable. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, something that uh, I should also say too is that uh, a, a lot of the art you're seeing, some of this stuff was done I'm sure this is the same for you, probably over a year in advance. I mean, I, yeah. I did things a million years ago I almost forgot about now that you still haven't even seen that you'll probably be getting in your mailbox soon. So it's um, that's one thing about commercial illustration. You know, you're, you're just always wrapped up in different stuff, and sometimes you'll forget and see something you did two years later. Yeah, and, it's, and especially, again, working in freelance, it's all about schedules, kind of juggling the schedules, juggling the projects you're working on. So usually that's the case. You're working on stuff six months in advance or more. And then sometimes you're, you're drawing a G.I. Joe con comic like literally a couple weeks before the convention and you get as much done as you can. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a bizarre schedule thing where you don't necessarily have uh, a boss you know, checking in on you every day. It's really your own initiative, like you know, how, how many hours am I going to put into work today because that's as much as I'm going to get paid. It, and it's also sort of a surreal experience that uh, I'm sure this is the same for you. We probably spend most of our lives working in solitude, so then to come speak in front of a crowd of people is kind of a, a, a real juxtaposition of what yeah. we do. 
It's either you, you really get two kinds. You either get people who are just so glad to have other human contact that they're just like, yes, people. Uh, and then some people are like, I forgot how to talk to people. You know, it's like, uh, usually it's one or the other. Um, yeah, so it's a, uh, yeah, you know, it's, that's why I think when we when we have conventions, I love going to shows. It's it's a chance for me to, like I said, I'm just working in my studio all day long. So talk to the people that have you know liked or enjoyed the work I do and, and kind of get their thoughts on it. There's a lot of times where I get feedback and interact with uh, specifically the GI Joe community online. Um, I started that immediately, like when I first got hired on, especially to IDW, and I knew that I'd be working on their launch of the property, uh, I jumped right on the boards, you know, the His Tank and the IDW forums and a number of other places. Uh, I got to know the guys on What's on Joe Mind uh, within Gary in the back, this man. Um, so then we, uh, you know, I was doing interviews and this wasn't anything IDW was putting me up for. I just wanted to promote the property. I just wanted to promote, you know, that we've got this big thing happening. And because of that, I was able to, you know, just get to know a lot of the people who are J.J. fans. And it was just, that was a lot of fun. Um, I was able to do interviews with a number of podcasts with What's on Joe Mind, also Star Joe's, and got to know those guys really well and became a regular co-host for that podcast. And um, it's just the community is such a big part of it. So, again, going from just being a, a guy in your studio by yourself working all day, you know, to, to be able to be a part of this larger community is is a blast, and it's something that is kind of very specific to Diego. Cool. So, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, any questions we have. I'm not sure how much time we have left here. A few minutes. All right. So uh, we got a microphone there in the back. If anybody does have a question, raise a hand, and I'll bring it over to you. I've got kind of a fantasy what-if question. Uh, let's say IDW comes up to you and says, We'd like you guys to do a 12-issue miniseries. Uh, what writer would you like to work with, and which one character would you like to write or draw? Hmm. Uh, I'll go ahead and take that first, because I was, I was talking to IDW back at New York Comic Con about this. I was like, hey, I've got an idea for a 12-issue series. <laughs> um, I think what we, what we had pitched, and, and not that there's any news or anything, you know, it's just what we had talked to them about in general was you're doing some kind of a, a special missions type book, you know, where we have a couple main characters who are kind of the core uh, that, that we're going to follow through the storyline, and that we'd have a rotating cast uh, that would fill out that team of five to six characters based on the environment that they're going to. So uh, initially, that's what the Snake Eyes series was supposed to be, where Snake Eyes and the, the newer character Helix were kind of this team up, and then Snake Eyes would be the field leader and picking a team of people appropriate to the environment to then go and fulfill the mission. I was so crazy excited about this. And, and, and even in hindsight, it's some of the funnest I've had drawing comic books. Like, I absolutely love working on that series. Um, but because it got wrapped into the Cobra Civil War, you know, the, the approach that we initially, me and uh, Chuck Dixon initially pitched for it, kind of got pulled into the event, you know, and, and it went a different direction. So I wanted to get back to that, and we were, I was talking with uh, Mike Costa, who I really enjoy. I got to know him from his work on Cobra initially, and um, met him at a number of shows. We've we've been uh, talking quite a bit since then. So we would like to pitch something like that, you know, where it was like a, we'd be following Flint and Lady J as a core group, and then they would be actually the, the field team leader, and in a very similar way, pulling three or four other Joes. Like that's very mission based, you know. If they're if they're going underwater, then they're bringing torpedo and you know wetsuit and you know, any 
it is appropriate for that. So for me, that would just be a dream project. And I would, the way I would go about designing it, uh, as far as the characters, and I've said this a lot of times, like I'm never out to totally redesign G.I. Joe. Like, I want to draw what I love, and what I love was the classic line specifically. So whenever I approach design or updating character or character art, it's, it's always based on that. Like You can look at that and know that it's a roadblock or, or whomever. And if I'm updating anything, it's just, I think I've mentioned this before at the show, it's just like making sure Dreadnoughts aren't wearing midriff ripoff shirts anymore or like <laughs> see-through fishnet tank tops. You know, it's not that intimidating anymore <laughs> to see people dress this way. So, um, you know, you might have to update it here or there just to make sure it's not so 80-centric. But, um, yeah, I mean, so to do a book like that, special missions-oriented book that would follow a couple core characters and be able to have a nice rotating cast to get a look at you know, the characters we don't see instead of those those top anywhere from eight to thirteen characters that we always see. Yeah, I'd love to kind of get some of those peripheral characters in books. Um, I, I've also had conversations with people about wanting to pitch stuff like that. Um, Mark Bellamo, the guy that's put out some of the toy books you might know, we've been talking about this for a million years, so I'm, I'm sure it'll come to fruition one day. But um, we've been wanting to do something that would explore some of the characters from like the late 80s, early 90s that haven't seen a lot of use, guys like Scoop, uh, Bullhorn, Sub-Zero, Pathfinder, stuff like that. And um, we discussed maybe doing something that looks in the vein of Sunbow's animation to kind of pick up where that left off, but in comic form and, and show some love to some of those lesser loved characters throughout the years. So when you're working on Photoshop, you're working on a tablet, what platform are you using? Um, what, what tablet are you using? Yeah. Uh, just a Wacom tablet, just flat, not a, not a Cintiq. I'm drawing on the screen, it's still weird to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you went to art school, how much how much of a jump was it to go from everything on paper to... Um, you know, it, it, I think this is a, a drawback to art schools nowadays, is that they're allowing kids that are just starting out to start going digital, and I feel like until you've really mastered traditional media, you don't understand how a lot of color theory and, and technique feels. So. I spent the majority of my time in art school working in traditional media and didn't really start to make the, the trip to digital until towards the end there, but um, it's a pretty natural transition. It's, it's an un unbelievably forgiving medium. It allows you to just correct anything, and it's, you know, it's so convenient as far as no mess and no supplies and quick turnaround and everything else. So once you make the jump, it's a pretty easy transition, I think. I, I'm just interested in, in finding out how, um, Mr. Atkins, you broke into the comic industry. Yeah, uh, I went to school actually down at the Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, where they have a degree in sequential art, which is basically just kind of telling the story with your art. And in that program, I learned how to do comics, uh, animation, storyboarding, uh, character design for video games, animation, that kind of stuff. Uh, it, was, it was a wonderful program, um, but as I was about to graduate from there, um, my professor kind of introduced me to uh, Randy Green, who is a part of the art studio that I'm with, uh, Tsunami Studios. And Randy was kind of using me on backgrounds just to help kind of get books done on time, you know, that he had to do. And he was kind of overloaded with his schedule and deadline. So I would drive up from Georgia up to North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, and um, for the weekend, you know, and just bang out as many pages as we could and then drive back and do classes for Monday through Thursday to drive back out. It was, Pretty big commute, you know, just to work on comics. But I was pretty excited about it. So um, then, right as I graduated, I just moved up to North Carolina and joined that studio full time, which didn't like hire me on, but I was able to work in the same environment with uh, five or six other artists that were full time comic book artists. And so that 
I was there for two years, and that was like the best mentorship internship I could I could have had. So within about nine or ten months out of school, I landed the Snake Eyes job with Devil's Do, and uh, they kept me pretty busy for um, about three years. Pretty you know working on various Joe projects or Forgotten Realms or a number of other things before IDW picked up GI Joe. So uh, I was about four years out of school when I. Started, you know, the GI Joe with IDW. Um, that was about you know, 2000, 2008. So, um, and and then the way that IDW specifically worked is that we work on, you know, about five issues of comics. And while I was working on issues one through five, they would have another artist working on, you know, six through ten, so that they always were, you know, were on as time as possible. And so I would usually work for, you know, five straight months on that book, maybe six, you know, if things if there was delays here or there. And I had about a month or two months before I had to really buckle down and get going on the next arc. Uh, so whenever I had those breaks in my schedule, I would get work at Marvel doing, you know, work on Amazing Spider-Man, Venom, and X-Men, and two other things. And so that was always fun just to kind of get do a little superhero stuff, which I do have a passion for, and then come back and work on G.I. Joe again. That change of pace, I think every time I came back, I came back a better artist just because I was excited to jump back into it again and just try new things and experiment. So, um, But yeah, it's... So in the last couple of years, I've done uh, you know comics, but I've integrated more of the commercial art, like the toy package art and other things. Again, just to try out new things and see what I like. And so that's all kind of pretty busy throughout my career. So I met you at a different con and asked you which figure you like to draw or act. Um, and it was one that wasn't a main GI Joe character, but you had kept putting them in the mar or in the comics. And I didn't see him in this year's. Um, uh, Convention comic is he going to be in the next couple of pages or is he hidden? <laughs> okay, um, are you talking about hot sauce? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So me, me, me and a couple friends of mine. I don't know. I don't know that this is super public information. So here we go. Okay, sorry. No, that's all right. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I might hear about this later. <laughs> so me, me and a couple friends of mine went to school with. We're just hanging out. I was working on a book. Uh, I was there at a convention. We're all sitting there talking. And two of the guys, one of the guys I went to school with, and he's a teacher at the Art Institute of Washington, one of his students. They're both two Puerto Rican guys. And we were talking about, they're like, hey, how come there's no Puerto Rican G.I. Joe's? And I was like, oh, there's got to be. Like, there's got to be. And we're looking through, like, sure enough, no. There's not a single Puerto Rican G.I. Joe. They're like, this is crazy. And I was like, I, I agree. You know, it's like, so if, if you can make a Puerto Rican G.I. Joe, like, Let's do it. Let's make this character. I was like, so what was his name? They're like, Hot Sauce. Bam! Like, right out of the gate. They're like, I was like, oh, what's it going to look like? They're like, oh, he's going to have like long jerry curl hair with like a bandana, aviator glasses, tank top. It's going to say Caliente across the <laughs> across the shirt. Like, it's, you know, they had it down. I was like, wow, have you guys been thinking about this? Like, no, but he's perfect. And so they were all set. They're all set to go. I'm like, well... Okay, and you know, I'm talking to these guys, man. It's not like I'm trying to tell them what Puerto Ricans do or anything like that. So I was like, so, I mean, but if he's a GI Joe, he's got to have a specialty, right? What does he do? They're like, um, we can set things on fire pretty good. I'm like, there you go, okay? So he's going to be like demolitions expert, like Molotov cocktails going left and right. Like, we got a plan. So we were all excited about this, and they're like, you got to draw him in the book. And I was like, he's not really a GI Joe. Like, just because we make up a GI Joe doesn't mean we can slide him in the book. And they're like, well, maybe you can. So, 
initially, I put him uh, it was on issue three of IDW. I just started. I can't believe I did this. So, <laughs> issue three of GI Joe, uh, there's these kind of robots infiltrating the pit base, and uh, one of these robots was running by, and it was like shooting a bunch of guns, and right front and center, I drew hot sauce being like, ah, you know, as he's like jumping away, and I was like, perfect, and I turned it in, and uh, the guys at IDW was like. This page looks great. And they send it to Hasbro to get approval. And they're like, the page looks great. Who's that guy? <laughs> and I was like, oh, just let me fix it real quick. I just threw a green shirt in there, you know, and just kind of swept that under the rug. I was like, maybe they didn't notice. So then I was like, oh, I gotta get hot. Now I was like on a mission to get hot sauce in the book. Uh, I was like, what I've got to do is make it a little more subtle. So, um, so then issue five, it, you can go and find it. Like issue five, after the robots had come through the pit, there's rubble everywhere. In the background, there's a guy sweeping up, pushing a push through, and it's hot sauce in the background. I caught so much heat from my Puerto Rican friends on that. I was like, come on, I'm trying to stick with the book. I can't you be happy for me. So then I think it was uh, issue 13 or 14, there's a scene where, it was issue 13. <laughs> um, there was a bunch of stuff going on down in the pit headquarters, and they needed to find Tunnel Rat because he had some expertise on these Aztec temples. and Tunnel Rat was down in the cafeteria. So like, somebody go down and get Tunnel Rat. They go down there and like, hey, Tunnel Rat, we need you up in the, need you up in the headquarters. And in the background, you'll see like, Hot Sauce walking by with a cafeteria tray, just like, do, 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 you know? So any place I could find him in a group scene, that guys are like, yeah, go Joe. Like he's in the background, you know, just like in between two other heads. Um, on that cover, I think it was issue 13, when they, when they relaunched it again, um, where there's like Duke, there's a retailer incentive, I think, where Duke is holding Scarlet in that real classic, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, pose. Uh, and there's 30 or 40 Joes in the background. Hot Sauce is real tiny up in the corner. So he even made a cover, you know, a published cover. <laughs> so he's the official, unofficial, you know, he's, he's published. I guess he's canon. I don't know. So if you really want to make him official, Hot Sauce on your convention forms this year, and uh, we'll, we'll get him an FSS. <laughs> So I'm all about that. I think on my list, I've got a hot sauce commission to do. Like, it's official, man. I gotta do it. So anyway, thanks. <laughs> Time for one more, maybe? Are you working on the new, are you working on the new G.I. Joe beam, handheld, anything like that? I'm taking a strike. Uh, no, not at this time, are you? No, no, yeah, I'm um, not working on that. I think there's one more question in the back. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to ask you a quick question. I am a huge fan of comics in general, and um, I heard that, and I even saw some concept art that uh, DC Comics was actually going to work with uh, IDW to do like a crossover with all the DC characters and Transformers and potentially G.I. Joe, but then it never uh, panned out because they rebooted everything in the new 52. I uh, just wanted to ask your opinion of uh, if you were put on the, uh, you know, the book, what characters from all the uh, series would you have liked to have done or would have just been the uh, ones that you said are not well known that you kind of want to keep in the, uh, you know, public eye? Um, yeah, whenever you have company crossover stuff, that's it's such a beast, you know, to try and wrangle because you're dealing with both companies' production schedules, what's happening in their canon at the time, and unless you take something 
you know, like Secret Wars, where the characters are just completely taken off in a different dimension or something to, to do their thing. Um, you know, it's, it's just a lot. And then you have kind of all the legal back and forth. So those events are so tough to put together. But, like, you know, if we had the opportunity to do that, um, what I generally like to draw the most and the best is kind of martial arts combat action. I love to choreograph it, to move the camera around, to explore it. Um, if I had the chance, I love comic book superheroes and stuff. One of my favorite characters are uh, like Nightwing or Deathstroke in the DC comics. Like again, just those not too overpowered, but again, they're just that martial arts uh, combat. So to see them, you know, be able to do a scene of you know, Snake Eyes against Deathstroke or something like that would be a blast. Now I know Snake Eyes isn't like the most peripheral character that's out there, but um, you know, but I love drawing like those types of scenes the best. You know, so for me, like. Being able to take characters, uh, you know, one of the one of the amazing things about when you do have those company crossovers is you can grab characters that have similar abilities or really play well off of each other and build each other up. Like, you know, Batman's a better Batman because he has, you know, like field tacticians like Flint and Scarlet helping him out and getting the job done. Like that would that would be awesome. Like to see them work together to get something done more than they can do on their own. So uh, that would be fun, you know. But I think you know it's. Sometimes those sometimes crossovers can feel a bit forced, you know, because they're not in the same <laughs> realm of believability as believable as comic books are, you know. Uh, you're like that could have happened in real life. Like, well, <laughs> it's a comic book, you know. So um, anyway, yeah, I do like crossovers when the characters really um, kind of gel and you know each character is better because of the crossover. You know, sometimes it can feel a bit forced, but all right, we'll just be loud. Yeah. Um, Robert, you mentioned in the beginning this um, specific drawing for G.I. Joe as opposed to, say, Spider-Man or any other number of characters. There are certain things that are very specific to G.I. Joe for yes. you. Uh, can you expound on that? Yeah, no, that's a, and that's a really good question. I meant to talk about it a bit. Um, uh, there are a few things. Because it's a toy line, you, your demographic is ultimately, say, different. I mean, there's some things that you can do uh, for age groups and readers, for other comics that... Uh, you know, ultimately, it, it's Hasbro's decision on what direction they want to take the property. So, and that can change. And, and it's been a pleasure to work with Hasbro. I really enjoy working with them. But they have the final say. So even though IDW licenses the the right to publish comics, you know, it is Hasbro's final approval. Uh, for when I was working at Devil's Due, um, you know, it was just incredibly strict. You know, what could be shown? Like, and there were times where we couldn't even have a character pointing a gun at another character. You're like, well, that's going to be tough to draw J.I. Joe, like, if you can't allow that. So there was things you had to work around it. You know, there's a lot of restrictions. When the licensing went to IDW, I don't know, you know, it's just complete speculation, but I would assume that there was some kind of um, change within the, you know, the committees that would approve things at Hasbro, uh, whether it was just personnel changes or just in general, just natural, it's going in a new direction. IDW was given a much wider license to explore like the level of violence or the level of realty or reality in the books. Um, and so there were things that we were doing in the IDW book that would, we would have never been allowed to do and had to revise back in the Devil's Due book. So that was it was interesting to kind of sit back and even work through that transition. I was working on for both companies to see how different that was. You know, even though it was still Hasbro, we think of Hasbro as kind of this giant entity, but you know, as people change over within that company, they have new directions and new ideas and, and what's available. So I, I never had to deal with that as much, you know, say when I was working at Marvel. Um, 
and the other thing too is so, so kind of dealing with the level of say violence or um, reality yeah, because it's always said it's a, it's a military fantasy is always what they kind of described it as so it's like we want to give the impression of military and the procedures and the weapons and the the threats but at the same time it's you know it's not strictly military realistic and and there's because if it was it wouldn't be J.I. Joe anymore you know what I mean like it deviates from that so finding that right tone is very difficult especially in the comic books and that's why we see so many reboots and relaunches because like they you don't know until you try it, you know, until they put that book out and you go through a few different writers to try and see if they can just hit nail that tone that is specifically G.I. Joe. So, and, and again, you know, while there is turnover in other companies, um, I found that G.I. Joe just has a very specific tone when it works. So, yeah. all right, I think, I think that takes all our time. Uh, we'd like to thank Robert Atkins and Adam Riches for your big man. All right, guys. Well, that's everything for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you liked the review of Princess Leia. I hope that you enjoyed the panel from JoeCon. I'm hoping that the next episode that you guys hear won't be too far after this one. So, all right, before we wrap things up here, uh, I did want to give a shout out to a, a really a cause that's out there right now. Um, it's not going to sound like it at first, but it's a project that was brought to our attention by uh, some friends of ours. Uh, you guys have heard us talk about the Roma Collectible guys uh, quite often. Well, uh, part of that group is Sarah. And if you've gone to a Joe Con or a toy show or something like that, you've probably met Aaron and Ken and Sarah. And Sarah is um, Aaron's wife. And she's just an awesome person. And she does a lot of cosplaying and at all of these events just recently at JoeCon, she I saw her cosplay as Zorana, and it was just really awesome. So like she really gets in into this, and the project that she brought to our attention actually ties into that cosplaying, and it's Girls of the Finest 2016 calendar. So there's a group out there that's known as the Finest. It's a GI Joe costume club, and they're working with the USO for their second annual Girls of the Finest charity calendar. And they need some help. What they want is they, they want contributions to help put this calendar together. And then they're going to sell it. And all proceeds are going to go to the USO. So it's a really cool organization. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It's been around forever. Helps support our troops and everything. And you know us here. We definitely are in support of our troops. Um, you can go to, they actually have a uh, Indiegogo account that's going on right now and as of this recording it's got about 35 days left they're looking for a goal of eight thousand five hundred dollars and they're currently at three thousand two hundred sixty five dollars uh, and that was within uh, 25 days they've they've been able to raise that so they're about there at their halfway point for this and they're as far as the number of days and about half to their halfway point when it comes to dollars so we would love to push them over the edge there is a lot of different rewards, but I'll let you check out the, the different awards and select which one will be right for you. You can donate $5. It's, that's the lowest denomination there, uh, but there's higher ones where you can actually you know get different rewards sent out to you. Um, 
just go to Indiegogo.com and do a search for Girls of the Finest, and you should have no problem finding it. I will also have a link to it on our website at StarJoes.com for the web the website. So you can actually just go to StarJoes.com, and under this episode, you'll be able to find that link. Um, really support them. It would be awesome for for this to be fully funded. Uh, evidently, it was very successful last year. I wasn't, unfortunately, aware of it last year, but definitely wanted to support it this year. Sarah's become a very good friend of, of ours. And this organization is definitely something that we want to support. You know, I love, I'm not into cosplaying personally, but I know a lot of people out there that are, and some of them are very close friends, and I think it's awesome that they do it. And it's always fun at conventions and everything else to be able to go up to someone that's dressed as your favorite character, take a picture with them, and it's, it's just an absolute blast. And obviously, this is going towards a great organization with the USO. So, again, go to Indiegogo.com and type in uh, Girls of the Finest, and you will be able to check out the different rewards that you can earn. Uh, some of them are very interesting, so I would definitely say at least go check it out. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and give our information. You can find us at starjoes.com. You can find us at the forumforgeeks.com. You can sign up and be a member there and interact with us every day, uh, as well as with other forum members. You can find us on Facebook. It is Star Joes. Just simply type in Star Joes and like us. We've been adding a lot of people on Facebook, and that is just absolutely awesome. And you guys are sharing a lot of information on Facebook, which is even more awesome. I love it whenever something gets posted and you guys have comments to say about it or you guys post something yourselves on our Facebook page. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Star Joe's Podcast. And there's a lot of people contributing that way as well. Um, you can send us a message also through Facebook. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not big on sending an email but you're on Facebook a lot, you can send a message right through our fan page to us. And we can read that in future episodes. But you can also uh, send us some email f- through just regular email, which is starjoespodcast at gmail.com, and we will read those and respond to them on future episodes. You can leave us a voicemail. We've got a couple to play in the future, probably on episode 150. And that is uh, 440-941-JOES, 440-941-JOES. You can call it anytime when it's most convenient for you. I know there's data plans out there and everything else, and you have to watch maybe what time you're calling, long distance, and things like that. You can call whenever it's convenient and free for you guys. It goes right to a voicemail. So you leave a message, and then we play it on a future episode, and then we respond to it. I'd love to hear from some people that either by email or voicemail that we've never heard from before, but maybe you're a longtime listener. It's always fun to hear a new voice or to hear a new voice through written word of email uh, on at any time. I, I love it when we get new fans. I love it when we get new listeners. So um, that's not to say I don't love our old listeners. You guys are absolutely awesome and steadfast and true, and it's really cool to have you guys around for, for as long as you have been. So I believe that is everything. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher Radio. Uh, it's a free app for your mobile devices, and you can make Star Joe's one of your favorites. But with that, we'll go ahead and close by saying the Force will be with you, because knowing us is half the battle. Take care, everyone. He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. Are those the new Joe's, Destro? Yes,
Commander. Who's on the watchtower? That's the jungle trooper. Code name Rakundo. And manning the howitzer? That's the flamethrower. Code name Blowtorch. And the halo jumper. Code name Ripcord. Who's by the bivouac? That's the dog handler. Code name Rut. And his dog Jumped On. They've not seen the last of Cobra. Watchtower, howitzer, bivouac, and GI Joe figures each sold separately from Hasbro.